I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. In this episode today, I'm with my good friend and colleague, John Golia. Hey, John. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. We are at the Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport. This is my home office. So occasionally you'll hear some aircraft flying by, and that's always good ambiance for an aviation show. So we will just go on and and talk about what it is that we want to finish up today, and that is our dissection of the Lion Air accident based on the National Transportation Safety Committee, that is the Indonesian version of the NTSB, using their information to demonstrate that all the facts that they've identified through the course of their investigation do not support MCAS, the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System on the Boeing 737 MAX, as being the cause or even a contributing factor to this accident. And that's not just personal opinion. That is not our spin on the facts. It is the interpretation of the facts as they've been presented in this very lengthy report. The problem is, is that the NTSC has manipulated those facts to make the MCAS system the focus of this investigation and the focus of the sequence of events and the focus of what they believe is the cause. But by their own words, that is not necessarily the case. And John and I have spent a lot of time dissecting this report over the past few months. And actually, over the past two days, we spent the majority of our time going through this report line by line. There was a few comments on uh, our email account that asked about how much time was spent on these, and, and I answered one directly, and the individual just couldn't believe that we spent so much time. But coming from the NTSB, that's the kind of detail that you have to perform. Now, we were somewhat frustrated in our attempting to do that with this paperwork because of omissions. It was pretty clear as we followed the trail, so to speak, through the paperwork that we came to an area that they skipped. There was questions to be asked, and they may have asked them, but they chose not to include them in their report. So we had to uh, struggle to get through that, make sure we understood it. We didn't add anything to it. We used their words, but it, it made for some confusing moments when the trail would all of a sudden take a left turn 
with no factual information to support the left turn. And as we've talked about in, in previous podcasts, John, especially as it relates to this report and the facts that are presented in this report, you know, there are a lot of folks out there that have come up with personal opinions. All the talking heads have, have gone into diatribes. The folks up on Capitol Hill who are asking questions in these public hearings get up there and they inject personal opinions, personal interpretations of information that isn't necessarily fact-based. They make a storyline out of the factoids. And again, the Indonesians, I will give them credit because they did write a very lengthy report. They did present a lot of factual information. But where this report falls short and the deficiencies in this report, like you were talking about the omissions, they never talk about the Indonesian version of the FAA, which is the DGCA. That's the oversight authority. That's the authority that gives the airline basically the permission to operate. Lion Air has to operate as the FAA does with our carriers receive permission, get certification to operate as an air carrier. They have to approve a variety of different programs so that carrier can operate, one being pilot training, two being the maintenance program. And there were there was just no discussion whatsoever in this 300-page-plus report about their oversight, about the DGCA's oversight. And as you and I have done for years at the NTSB, we have always looked at the FAA, their responsibility, their oversight of a carrier here in the United States or an operator in the United States to determine whether or not they have done sufficient oversight and enforcement so that the rules and the certification basis for which that airline or operator is capable of operating is enforced. And you can see it here in the United States. You know, we think we're the top of the hill, so to speak in our regulations and what we do. But uh, just look at the recent past with the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth FISDO and the problems with both American Airlines and even bigger problems with Southwest Airlines with their local FAA allowing a number of things to go on that probably would not have been allowed in any, any other FISDO, any other FAA office in the United States. And when you look at that, that oversight, that has become a prevalent or prominent issue. The NTSB looks at it, they dissect it, they write about it, and they factor it in where need be into either the causes of the accident or contributing factors to the accident. It's just amazing how far away from the, the standards that we get as we, we move down the chain in the United States and as we move out into the, into the rest of the world. And that's one very glaring deficiency in this Indonesian report that they never talk about the oversight by the regulatory authority. The other very glaring oversight is the fact that they don't talk about Lion Air as a company, as an organization, with the organizational structure, their organizational culture, their safety culture. They do cite a bunch of policies and procedures and, and that kind of thing that are set forth by the company but they don't talk about how the company enforced it, how they maintained it, how they oversaw it, as far as, again, and, and I think one of the glaring things is what they were doing with the maintenance group. It was obvious that when we dissected all the maintenance issues, John, that there was just definitely no oversight by the company, let alone the certification authority, the regulatory authority. You know, they have procedures that say that everything is supposed to be written in the logbook. But we've got clear examples prior with this airplane prior to the accident where it was all verbals. 
the flight crew gave a verbal to maintenance, going for days and days without any issues. The airplane had some pretty big issues three weeks prior to this accident in and around the system, not the AOA transducer itself, but in the system with flags and the flight directors. So and this is a new airplane, relatively new airplane, and we're getting some pretty glaring non-routine items that beg to be looked at deeper than what they were. So in this episode, because we've dissected the history of flight and all of the errors and issues that the flight crew was facing during the accident flight, and we demonstrated that the MCAS itself only fired a number of times, but it was constantly handled by the captain when the captain was flying the airplane. And then in this episode, we want to talk about the fact, and John made a comment on one of the previous podcasts, and it's an adage that we, we live by in, in aviation, and that is, fly the way you train, train the way you fly. And it is evident, very evident, in this accident, using the, the words of the NTSC, that when you look at the training that both these pilots received, especially the first officer, the deficiencies the deficiencies of the first officer throughout his training, those deficiencies in training ended up translating into the cockpit. So when we talk about fly the way you train, train the way you fly, he was very bad in training. He was very bad in the cockpit, especially when he had to be on his A-plus game using all of that knowledge and skill and experience that he supposedly accumulated to handle a situation and assist the captain. And the captain also had some training deficiencies when it came to what? Crew resource management. That is a vital characteristic that it was an issue in his training. It too, it translated into the cockpit. And I think some of those even probably translated into the maintenance side of the house, John. There's no question the communications piece. We call in maintenance human factors, communication is a big piece of it. But also in CRM, in uh, many of the U.S. carriers, when they talk about CRM, they include line maintenance personnel along with the flight attendants, along with the front end crew, the captain and co-pilot, in some of that training. I know uh, at least one major carrier includes those line maintenance personnel in their training as a team. You know, they have one or two day training with all three groups, work groups, in the same room talking about problems and, and uh, issues. And many of them boil down to communications. And we see in this accident, going through the, the way it was handled from earlier in October right up to the day of the accident, that their communications is breakdowns are all over the place. Yeah, both outside the airplane and inside the airplane. So with this episode, we want to summarize, again, John and I could spend you know a month dissecting everything that's in this report because there is a lot of great information. It has either been glossed over or ignored because the readers, and especially in the news media, the talking heads and everybody else, they don't want to see what John and I are seeing because that's not the sexy story. It's all great factual information, but it leads to a different conclusion. And the conclusion that John and I have come up with is substantially different than what the world and the public are seeing based on information that comes out in a variety of different sources. And again, this isn't us spinning the facts. This is us just interpreting the facts as we read them based on being accident investigators. And so we want to show, at least identify some of those leaps of logic that the Indonesians have taken 
where there is no logic train there. They put all this information in that supports human errors as issues and causes and contributing factors, but they have made leaps of logic to make this an MCAS uh, software cause rather than a human error cause. They do talk about crew proficiency and, and some of the deficiencies that took place, but they've put those on a back burner. They've really de-escalated their importance in this report, and that is really intolerable from an aviation safety standpoint. They say in the beginning of their report, which I find kind of ironic, it said readers are advised that the KNKT, which is the NTSC or the, in the Indonesian Investigative Authority, investigates for the sole purpose of enhancing aviation safety. Consequently, the KNKT reports are confined to matters of safety significance and may be misleading if used for any other purpose. One, I've never seen that in any kind of report, but two, that's a dead giveaway to me that all of a sudden now they're trying to qualify how they came up with their bottom line in this report when it really makes no sense. It's not supported by the facts, conditions, and circumstances as you and I have dissected them over and over and over and over again. It's unfortunate. You know, one of the reasons why we go through, in this country and most of the world, go through these accident scenarios like this and into this level of detail is to pick out all those little points that can be corrected and improve in safety along the line. We got CRM because we did that in the 80s and identified the disconnects in the cockpit and actually started in the 70s. But it, Needless to say, we have tried to address those problems in the cockpit, whether it be communications or the, the years that the captain was guard and the first officers and the flight engineers would never open their mouth about what they were seeing or what problems they were seeing. We've, as an industry, we've worked hard to, to pound down all of those issues. But the way this is laid out, we're going to miss those issues because they don't bring them to the forefront. And it's already a, a year later, we've already missed a lot of opportunities. Yes. I'm a firm believer that some of the, as you go through reports, and I did this at the NTSB and sometimes was criticized, I would give the raw data out. I would talk to people before the report was, and talk to industry groups saying, hey, this is going on. We should be thinking about this. Yes. We should be trying to deal with it. And you want to get their perspective. You want to see how they interpret those same facts. And that's what we're doing. Now, we know what the NTSB, they were a technical advisor to the NTSC in this investigation. Based on this investigation and their participation in it, they came up with a series of recommendations to basically Boeing, the manufacturer, and saying, you need to identify all the possible alerts and warnings and this, that, and the other. Well, you and I were critical of that several shows back. And the fact is, it still stands today. And in fact, it's even worse now that we've dissected this report further to really see what was going on in that cockpit with this flight crew, not just the captain, not just the first officer, but with this flight crew, both as individuals and as a crew. And I think that, you know, as we get into this particular podcast, we're going to identify some more of those poignant points. But again, one of the big issues is you and I are investigators. We live by this creed of root cause investigation not obvious cause not political cause root cause that is you have to get down to the bottom and ask yourself as an investigator all the why questions until there are no more why questions 
that's usually the start of this whole sequence of events. Right. It's not just why, who, what, when, where, and why. Ask those questions over and over and over again until you get to the very bottom. And in this report, they didn't do that. To the credit, I think I see, when you go into the factual, I think I see the fingerprints of organizations like the NTSB and others, the professional organizations, if you will, in this report, in the factual side. Yes. Analysis belongs to the country Correct. that the accident occurs with. That's where it gets twisted a little bit. But they also twist it in some of the sections of the factual that are more like a narrative other than just bullet points that this happened, this happened. So I see some of it where politics may have entered it. But I think we need to give credit to the investigators. And it's probably some of the Indonesian investigators that probably went the extra mile to make sure that this language got into the report. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's so lengthy. It is, it is full of factual information. It was just the analysis of these facts that were skewed. And, and it was obvious, as you and I have talked, and, and we always preach, and especially in the accident investigation world, you never reverse engineer the facts to support a predetermined probable cause. And it's obvious when you read this analysis that they were going to make MCAS the cause of this accident, and they reverse engineered not only not all the facts, but cherry-picked the facts to try and support their MCAS conclusions. You know, one of the things that I picked up early on when this report first came out is you start to get, read the narrative down, and they talk about the stick shaker on takeoff coming up. The very next sentence, they talk about the repeated application of MCAS. That was 11 minutes later. Exactly. But they write it like it was immediately following it. So you get the impression that MCAS popped in there, and now the flight crew is behind the curve. Yep. And again, we spent one of our longest podcast times dissecting just the history of flight as presented. This is the facts of the NTSC and their investigative team. And when we looked at it and when you read it, and, and we encourage you to get a copy of the report if you haven't read it, and open up your mind and read it with a critical eye, but keep things in context, and you can get the copy of the report. If you can't find it on the Internet anywhere else, go to the PAMA website. That's the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, to the website, and you can pull down a copy of it. But read it with an open mind, and you will see. And do what we did. We timed out exactly what was going on in the timeline, what was going on with the crew, and when MCAS would have activated or been armed and activated, and when it wouldn't. And as we've talked about in the past, MCAS, this airplane flew for the first three minutes, three plus minutes, without any kind of MCAS activation or even being armed because the airplane was in a configuration for takeoff. So as long as the flaps were down, regardless of whether the stick shaker was going or anything else, the flaps were still in a takeoff mode. Therefore, MCAS was inhibited. And even when the captain did call for flaps up, they did retract, and MCAS did activate. And this was the other problem I had with the Indonesians. They kept switching between terms. They kept calling it either the automatic aircraft nose down trim input, or then they would call it MCAS, but then they would call it automatic nose down trim input. Pick a term and stick to it because it can be very confusing. And so in dissecting this, once the captain had the flaps retracted 
the automatic airplane nose down trim did begin to roll and it rolled for about 10 seconds. He immediately recognized and he, he countered it with nose up trim. One that interrupted what was the automatic nose down trim or MCAS. It interrupted that activation and once he had the airplane nose up trimmed, he told the first officer put the flaps back to, to flaps one. Guess what? That would inhibit arming and activation of the MCAS. And now they flew for another five minutes without any MCAS armed or activated because the flaps were down. And in fact, they put the flaps down to five. So now they're maneuvering for at least eight minutes without any possible threat. But fighting other problems. Correct. They were trying to identify other problems. They did identify that they had a disparity between the airspeeds. They did understand that they had a disparity in altitude. And of course, and, the stick and they had the stick shaker still going off, but they didn't have the bells and whistles. They didn't have all this pandemonium going on in the cockpit because, again, as you read the transcript, you see that they were conversing back and forth. The problem is, and this is what we're going to discuss today, is the deficiency of the performance by the first officer. That is based on the fact that he had a lot of training issues. When you look at the captain, you know, we've talked about the captain in the past. I will give this captain a lot of credit because he did, once the trim started rolling, uncommanded, especially, quote, during the activation of MCAS, end quote, he countered it. And in fact, you counted how many times, John. We've talked about 10, 12 times, but we went back and looked at it. And what would you count? 28 times of activation yep. that the captain reversed using his electric trim switches and that was in the latter stages of the flight it wasn't up front as everybody thought right after takeoff in fact the airplane had flown for almost five plus minutes almost six minutes before all of a sudden you had the continuous mcas activation because the flaps were still down they had had the flaps down the key point here is that the flaps retracted uncommanded we don't know who commanded it and the, even the Indonesians put in their report that the flaps did come up from flaps five to flaps one, flaps one to flap zero. But there was never any discussion between the crew, which is poor communication. There was no command by the captain, who was the flying pilot at that time. But the first officer was in the emergency procedures. And when you look at the timing, it could have been coincident. But you can probably draw a logical conclusion that as the first officer was going through the, the procedures, which you can hear on the cockpit voice recorder, that he's turning pages, so it's obvious he's in the manual. He may have seen what to do, and that was bring the flaps up for whatever reason. And he never told the captain, and of course the captain didn't command it. As soon as he brought those flaps up, MCAS gets armed, starts to activate. But the captain was astute enough that when the trim rolled and the nose wanted to tuck, he would reverse it. And he would reverse it with sufficient trim input to counter anything that MCAS was inputting into the stab trim. Essentially, he brought it back, the trim back to the green. And I don't even know for sure if this, it's green on that particular airplane, but back to the normal range. Yes. And he did that repeatedly. So he recognized that the trim was moving out, out of where he needed to have it. 
And as soon as it started to go in the wrong direction, he interrupted it and brought it back to where it belonged. And he did that 28 times. Now, the question John and I have had is, okay, after the first two or three, it keeps doing something that you're not commanding and the first officer isn't commanding. Why don't you take other corrective action, which in this case would have been to activate the stab trim cutout switches? He didn't do it. But again, got to give a lot of credit to him because every time MCAS activated, he then negated it or mitigated it by sufficient trim inputs to neutralize whatever MCAS had rolled in. And he did that for an additional five minutes. So on an 11-minute flight, 11-and-a-half-minute flight, for the first 10 minutes of the flight, the airplane was under control. It was maintaining some semblance of altitude around 5,000 feet, and the airplane remained flying. It was, albeit going very fast because they didn't disconnect the auto throttles, but the fact is, is that the airplane was fully under control. But then we get into some of the deficiencies, and this is a huge issue. When you look at the captain, he had well over 6,000 hours of flying time, 5,100 plus hours in the 737. He had just come out of a proficiency check earlier that month. His proficiency check was around the 6th or 7th of October. The airplane crashed on the 29th over there. And so when you look at it, he was plugged in. He recognized this situation. He knew what to do to counteract, not albeit completely, because they didn't have all the procedures identified and executed, but he did counteract every time the airplane wanted to dive out because of additional trim inputs from the MCAS, he contradicted or countered every time the pilot who was flying the airplane, in this case the captain, every time the captain identified that the airplane had a nose-down tendency due to the input from MCAS, he then counteracted that with the use of the trim switch to interrupt MCAS and then add in airplane nose-up trim. So the long and the short of it for the next five minutes, the 28 times that he did activate the trim in, you know, as he addressed MCAS, the airplane remained neutral, basically. He was around 5,000 feet, yes. There were, you know, they weren't able to hold a, a constant altitude, but that was because he was having to retrim the airplane. But the other thing is, and again, the Indonesians didn't talk about it, is that is the speed increase because the auto throttles were still engaged. And the first officer talked about it, and you can see it on the flight data recorder, and the Indonesians in the report identified the speed changes. Every time that airplane increased in speed, it's going to change the trim. It's going to change the aerodynamic trim necessary to hold altitude. And so you had a little bit of combination of both, but the captain was handling it just fine. That airplane was under control for the first 10 minutes of the flight, even with all of these issues going on. But when you look at their training and their history, and you look at a 4,000-plus-hour first officer, actually he had 5,000 total time, but 4,000-plus in the 737, you have to wonder, one, here's a guy who's 41 years old. He's 5,000 hours plus in total time, 4,200 hours of total time in the 737. The captain asked him twice to execute the memory procedures, the memory items for unreliable airspeed. They're very simple. There's two of them. Autopilot off, autothrottles off. Two items. And he couldn't do it. 
He ignored the captain the first time he asked him. The second time, which was about two minutes later, he responded and said, where do I find them? And then starts rifling through the manual. Which you could hear on the recorder. The page is flapping. And the question is, here's a guy with 4,200 hours. He's been through initial training and multiple proficiency and recurrent training elements at Lion Air. How is it that you don't know those procedures? Because you got to demonstrate that for all of these rides. How is a guy like that in the cockpit who doesn't know where it is in the manual, doesn't know it as a memory item because he's supposed to, how is this guy still flying? How is he even in the cockpit to begin with? And what help or hindrance was he to the captain? You know, you got two points with this flight crew that we haven't brought up very strongly. And the first one is the captain on the, on the voice recorder, when he shows up and meets the first officer, he mentions to him that he's sick. Yes. And he's hacking away. He said he had the flu. On the uh, voice recorder, multiple times he can be heard having his little fit of coughing. And on top of that, the first officer wasn't scheduled to fly this trip. Yep. They had pulled him off from rescheduled them to this one. The question that was never asked in the report was the duty day for this guy. Yep. Did he have adequate rest? What was he coming off of? It was totally ignored, which is something would not happen in, in Europe or in the United States. Yep. And the fact that when you're sick, we've identified it. The NTSB has done a lot of work. The Buffalo accident with Continental Express, they talk about it in the report. The fact that the first officer was commuting a long distance. She had been on multiple airplanes. She was sick during the, you know, while she was commuting, she had some sort of head cold or case of the flu or whatever, that she was sleeping in a crew room, so she wasn't getting very good rest. But they dissected that fatigue and the fact that she was sick. There is no mention other than buried in their report about what the captain told the first officer. But, you know, we know, and everyone knows, that when you're sick, you're not really plugged in. You know, you don't feel good. You're not thinking clearly. You're thinking more about how bad you feel rather than how good you feel and things like that. Those are two critical elements that were deficient in a discussion, especially since this is, quote, a human factors type accident. Those two elements should have been explored and dissected even more. But then when you get into the, the training history of the crew, it's cited as factual information. The Indonesians cited as factual information. I anticipated that, okay, they put in all this information in the body of the factual part of the report. You go to the analysis. They do analyze the fact that this first officer and this captain had training deficiencies. The performance by the, the first officer was deficient and hindered, really, the operation of the aircraft during the accident flight. But that's where they leave it. They never use it. They never bring it forward as the basis for a causal factor or a contributing factor. They just cite it as a fact. And they don't even go through it. What's the training syllabus? Is it the Boeing recommended procedure? Is it one that they created themselves from Boeing and from other operators? I mean, it's not uncommon for operators to change the procedures from what the manufacturer says. Oftentimes they add to it, but occasionally they subtract something as well. But their authority also has to approve that change. So what kind of training did these guys get? What was the basis of the training? In other words, was it based on the Boeing syllabus or somebody else's syllabus? And where was the approval from the authority? I mean, there were some really key 
comments that the Indonesians put in their report. One, during a training session back in 2013, the remark on the uh, training form about the first officer was work item workload management, which was a remark that the FO tended to have a press-on-itis attitude. We know that's the same as get home itis. Press on itis is, you know what, we're going to keep going to destination or we're going to try to accomplish the mission rather than do the prudent thing of doing an air return and going back or doing something that we should have done or should be done. We just press on regardless of how detrimental that situation might be. He demonstrated that in training. And all of a sudden now, you have some of that influence here in the accident because the first officer, I will give him credit, he did ask the captain, hey, what do you want me to tell ATC about returning to the airport? But it was the captain who demonstrated that kind of attitude who said, we're not going back to the airport, we're going to a holding pattern. Why? Presumably they're going to try and figure out what's going on and then keep going. Kind of like what happened on the flight the day before. Exactly. When the guys had a sick airplane. They identified a sick airplane, yet they continued on to destination with a stick shaker going in a sick airplane rather than going back to to Bali. And I know that you'd been talking and and heard some scuttlebutt about the fact of flight completion and and pay. That's been out there to talk, and we've seen it in other accidents where this crew, and by crew they mean both the flight attendants and the captain and co-pilot, don't get paid if they return back to the base that they launch from. They only get paid for completed flights. And so if you think about that premise, that starts to set up the premise for this particular flight. It definitely is reminiscent of what happened the day before because they should have turned around and gone right back to Bali with that sick airplane. Instead, they flew for an hour and a half with that sick airplane to get it back to Jakarta. And then, you know, I was looking at the factual side of that airplane when it landed in Jakarta. And they wrote up the flags on the instruments and the lights that they had. But they never mentioned the fact that they flew with the stick shaker. Yep. And they never mentioned the fact that they had turned off the trim. Those are two critical pieces to determining the type of problem they had. So that airplane was unairworthy when it landed, and it was still unairworthy the next day because they didn't write it up. They didn't make maintenance aware of those problems. But also... I wonder if they didn't write it up because they were afraid they were unknown whether they'd be punished for flying an airplane with the stick shaker yep. on. You know, there's all these backstories, John, and all these questions that if you and I can be sitting here, you know, a year and a half later asking these questions, why wasn't somebody asking these questions and getting answers during the official investigation and addressing all of this? That's the problem I have. With reading this report, there are so many other questions that need to be answered. There's more information that needed to be developed. And so this report, while it's long and lengthy and it's got some good information in it, there are still big gaps and holes in the information, the presentation of the information, and then where that type of information fits in the grand scheme of root cause investigation. And what's really unfortunate in all this, because of this lack of of really detailed investigation is the opportunity is going to be lost to train future pilots into these kinds of problems and hopefully mitigate them yeah right, included in their training programs we're going to miss so much from this accident we're going to blame mcas mcas has gone through changes 
The manuals will be changed. The flight training will be changed. But the other issues that are bubbling up inside this report are not going to get any additional focus. The root cause of this accident isn't going to be fixed. That's true. Because Lion Air isn't being held accountable for poor training of these two pilots. Not only that, what about the maintenance? Yeah, and the maintenance. I Absolutely. Mean, when I look at this, I see guys resetting circuit breakers. So if you're one of the trained, one of the, you know, there's one apparently about one trained mechanic to six non-trained or lowly, poorly trained mechanics. If you were the guy with all the education, you should have known once you reset those breakers, you're going to wipe out all the information. Yeah. The lesser trained people probably have seen people do that and they just routinely do it as part of their, what they think is troubleshooting, but they erase the messages. So in at least two or three occasions before this accident happened, they've erased the problems. And maybe it wasn't unconscious because there's one example in the raw data where a mechanic was doing the bite test. Bite is built-in test equipment. He's doing the bite test on one of these systems, and he gets a failure for the AOA. Yep. And he ignores it. <laughs> yeah. I mean... <laughs> It is just unfathomable when you see these glaring things and they're not addressed properly, taken in sequence, taken in context, and then deployed as the root cause or causes of this accident. I mean, looking at the training record of the first officer, I'll just read you some of these things. I mean, this is exactly what happened on this accident flight by this first officer. The FO needs to also manage stress while aircraft attitude was changing, such as pitch due to external aspects, wind, etc. Another one, it was noted that the FO missed the initial altitude for the standard instrument departure. On the assessment item, flight management system, the remark was FO missed identifying non-normal checklists. That's what we're talking about here. You keep going, you know, up to through 2016. FO had difficulty in maintaining the aircraft straight on final approach course. Again, in 16, difficulties in controlling aircraft during manual flight. Guess what? He was in manual flight when he lost the airplane the last minute of the accident flight. Another comment, application exercises for stall recoveries is difficult due to wrong concept of basic principles for stall recovery in high or low level. That's basic airmanship. That's basic flying. And this is happening a year before this accident. He's had these deficiencies, and yet he supposedly has 5,000 hours of, of flight time. Another one. In April of 18, which is only about five months prior to the accident, six months prior to the accident, he was on a proficiency check. The remark was that he was too slow on scanning when on final approach and that he needed to improve his situational awareness. And then the last one, the last comment in August of 18, a couple of months before the accident, again, situational awareness. He wasn't plugged in. That's identical to what was going on in that airplane on the accident flight. And yet it doesn't talk in anywhere about any remedial activity additional training for that they note it but there's no no notation of additional training the only thing that's buried in the analysis that i read about that john is that in indonesia at lion air they do quote briefings and rehearsals now i take from that that the quote briefing is hey you screwed that up this is how you fix it and then they, quote, do a rehearsal, which is, okay, now that you know I've showed you how to do it, you do it. And then they write them off as being proficient. You know, that fits with what we heard from Captain Chenard. 
where she said in, in the simulator, and she worked for Jet, what they would do, when they would tell the crew, the next item you're going to do is an engine out at uh, V1, and give them time to refuel the manual, practice it, yes, and then say, okay, we're going to do it now. And they would do it and pass. Yeah. And then after that, then they would say, okay, now we're going to do a fire at, at cruise, engine fire at cruise. Yep. And they would get a chance to review, practice, and then come in and do it. One that of defeats the, the whole example. Absolutely. And one of the key things, that, at least with the FAA, and what their expectation is of a pilot, regardless of whether you're a student pilot going for a check ride for your, for your private or an ATP or whatever, they talk about the word mastery that you have to demonstrate a level of proficiency, but a mastery of what it is that you're doing. And there is a big difference. I can be proficient temporarily to go out and demonstrate to a Czech airman or a designated examiner that I can go out and do stalls without losing control of the airplane. But if I haven't flown the airplane for two years, where I fly a different airplane, I may not have that same level of proficiency. You have to demonstrate a mastery. That is, you have to understand exactly what it is you're doing, why you're doing it, and then what's going on through the recovery of it. That's mastery. And when I've read this report, I see these deficiencies. I see all the stuff these guys got away with, including the day before in that flight crew. The fact is, that wasn't proficiency. <laughs> a lot of it was luck to begin with. But they weren't showing mastery. They weren't showing proficiency. And in fact, they were showing some level of ignorance, which was intolerable because they're taking a sick airplane into the air. And so none of that's talked about. And we would have been very, I believe, that, you know, <laughs> at least when you and I were at the NTSB, that that stuff wouldn't have been tolerated and, and just definitely, you know, ignored in the final report. Why? We looked at it with Buffalo, with Colgan and Continental Express, how bad those two pilots were together in that airplane under that situation. We've seen it in other accidents with higher experienced pilots, yet they never talk about it here. And this is, these are critical elements because as we just discussed, this captain had the airplane under control, albeit they didn't do all the procedures and the first officer's rifling through a book trying to find the procedures. The fact is, is that this airplane was fully under control. The transition was a little over a minute left in the flight when the captain for whatever reason, gave control of the airplane to the first officer without a proper turnover, without properly briefing him. This is what it feels like. This is what I've been doing to keep the airplane going. You know, you need to be doing the same thing. So I think what he missed was the first officer wasn't plugged in because you would expect, given what was going on, real high level of attention. But the first officer was uh, struggling with his deficiencies in the uh, trying to find the procedures in, the, in his uh, manual. And I'm not sure he wanted to fly because early on the captain wanted him to fly. He was trying to turn the control of the airplane over to him shortly after takeoff. And the first officer said, stand by. Well, he told him to stand by because the first officer was still talking with ATC, trying to figure out what was going on, where they wanted him to go, rather than being definitive and saying, we got a problem, you know, stick us in a piece of airspace, block the altitude, we'll get back to you, don't bother us. He kept trying to comply with turn left, turn right, go up, go down, which was a distraction. And the Indonesians talk about the distractions. What they didn't talk about as far as the distraction, they only talked about ATC distraction. They failed to talk about the fact that the first officer 
was prompted most likely by the captain, and again, it's not recited in the report, but the first officer called the flight attendant during a critical phase of this 11-minute flight, called the flight attendant and said, hey, there's an engineer flying in the back. So she not just called it. Didn't she, she came call, in the cockpit. She came in the cockpit, and then he told her. So now you got a, you got a flight attendant in the cockpit while these guys are trying to figure out what's going on with this airplane, and he's having this conversation, hey, go get the guy sitting in the back. Well, the engineer... And again, it's buried in the report. You don't see it anywhere except in a very small area on page like 80 of the report where this engineer, he's a maintenance tech. He introduced himself when he first got on the airplane early in the morning. But he said, hey, I'm not qualified on this airplane. I just want to say hello kind of thing and sitting in the back. So now he is summoned to the cockpit. He opens the door. He walks in and the captain says, see, look what it's doing. Look what it's doing. Well, this guy's standing there. What am I supposed to do? I have no idea what, what's going on. Right. And that conversation takes place while they're struggling, struggling to, you know, fly this airplane and figure out what's going on. They've got people in and out of that cockpit. And it's never, ever factored in to the distractions and to the, you know, not only the distraction, but again, you're not plugged in. <laughs> you're, right, going, you're there, but you're not there. Exactly. Now, I, again, I will give the captain credit because he maintained control of the airplane during that period of time. He was still using the trim. I don't know why he never turned off the stab trim cutouts, but it is what it is. But he maintained control. But as you and I have looked at and we've talked about in our previous podcast, everything started to go downhill literally when the first officer took over command of the airplane for whatever reason from the captain. And in fact, the captain got on the radio. He was already on the radio talking to air traffic control when he turned over control to the first officer. And the first officer said, man, this, the control column is heavy. It's heavy. And, you know, the captain didn't really respond to him. He's still talking on the radio. And then when the first officer in this final 50 plus seconds of flight, when the first officer told the captain, hey, the airplane wants to descend or is, is descending. The captain's response to him was, that's okay. That's okay. Meanwhile, the autothrottles are still engaged. They're heading to the ground from less than now 5,000 feet. They're heading towards the water at 360 plus knots. And the, the only response you get from the captain is, that's okay. I mean, the ground's coming. Get off the radio, take command of the airplane. Coach the guy if you don't want to get on the stick. Coach the first officer. Pull the power off, pull the nose up. I think that, that his being sick is a big part of that. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're sick, life goes in slow motion. And I think that's probably part of what, it's not the whole answer, but I think it may be part of the answer. But the problem I have with this, John, and you and I have been beating our head against the wall. These are the facts. We're not making this stuff up. And I encourage everybody that's listening to the podcast and pilots at a number, of, you know, at any of the airlines who fly this airplane or are interested, read the report with an open, critical eye like this and go through the entire report. You look at the analysis. In the analysis of this report, these leaps of logic aren't supported by the facts that are in the front portion of the report. And then there's good information that is buried later on in the report. Whether that's intentional or unintentional, the fact is, is that there is some good information, but it's so disconnected 
from the very end of the report were the conclusions. The first 60-plus conclusions in the report have to do with Boeing, MCAS, and the FAA. And that's wrong. It should be reversed because all of the human factor stuff that they've buried in, you know, number 67 through 90 or whatever, those are the ones that should be up front. Anybody but me. And my concern now is that the Ethiopians are going to do the same thing. They aren't looking critically at themselves. They definitely aren't looking critically at the airline. They aren't looking critically at the oversight. They aren't looking critically at the training programs. And that one we're going to have a field day with because that flight crew supposedly was trained with knowledge of what came out of Lion Air, and they still crashed the airplane because they too failed to follow procedures. And the question is, where's the safety benefit here? We know where the financial benefit is. It's poking Boeing and and the FAA by a country who really doesn't have a whole hell of a lot of money. You got an airline, though, that's owned by a very wealthy individual. Why isn't the DGCA mentioned here? Why aren't they doing oversight? Why aren't they looking at this guy? Why aren't they looking at this airline, especially given the fact that this airline has a chronic history of breaking airplanes, both before Flight 610 and after Flight 610? Where is that? No, it's certainly not up to the standards of ICAO, never mind the standards of uh, Europe or the United States. Their whole operation was... Well, it's just, it is sad, John, because, like you said, there are many opportunities to correct the situation, identify safety issues that could have been corrected a long time ago. But are we really correcting? Because there is no root cause here. There is none. You and I have identified it. But there is no root cause in this written manifesto, if you will. The fact is, is that when you look at the safety benefit to aviation, yes, they've, uh, they got lucky and poked Boeing with, you know, the MCAS stuff. Is it going to create change? Absolutely. But it's still not going to fix the training program because Boeing doesn't run their training program. It is not going to fix pilot attitudes, qualifications, and competency in the cockpit because Boeing has no control over that. Where's the oversight for the airline? Just doing business as usual. They don't care. They haven't changed anything. Where are the changes? I know what the recommendations said. The recommendations are obvious and hokey. Where's the changes for their maintenance organization? Yeah. Where's the accountability, John? There is no accountability in this report. They don't talk about what the training was. They don't talk about the actions that were taken after this, other than a recommendation that says, be sure to ensure that your guys follow procedures. Really? How are you going to do that? As an aside, I hope that somebody, the company or somebody, is uh, looking after that crew from the day before, because if they know that they have a big piece of responsibility in this accident. Yeah, because they didn't write it up. And right. they, I mean, and you and I have talked about this before. That's why it's so important that a flight crew, even in their own procedures, it required the captain to write up every maintenance issue in the maintenance logbook. So why did that crew fail to do it? What was the motivation for not putting all the information in there? That's the deficiency. That's what has to be figured out. And if anybody wants to poke anybody, okay, You've already poked Boeing in the FAA. Who's poking Lion Air? Who's poking the DGCA? Who's holding them accountable? Because these accidents are going to happen again. And my fear right now is that when this airplane is returned to service, we don't know how those airplanes have been maintained. We know what Boeing has told us 
as far as them trying to work with the customers to get these airplanes back into flyable condition once the return to service occurs. But I guarantee if there's a maintenance problem that leads to a, any kind of event, they're going to blame Boeing when, in fact, it's the deficiency of the respective carrier because they didn't do the things they were supposed to do. In fact, GE is very, very much concerned over the state of their engines that have been left. And have they been uh, pickled properly? Yeah. Were they run? If they weren't pickled, were they run every three or four days that's required? Yeah. So I, I mean, Boeing has a whole team doing that right now with all the airplanes that are sitting all over, you know, the factory and, and up at Everett and everywhere else. They're doing that. So those airplanes will be good to go. The airplanes that are going to be of real concern are those over in Indonesia, Ethiopia, and everywhere in between. We don't know what they're doing. I know Boeing's trying to figure out what they're doing, but that's no insurance policy that those airplanes will be, quote, in an airworthy condition because you don't know what's been going on for the last year. Well, in Indonesia's case, I don't even know, based upon this accident, that they understand what airworthiness is. Well, it's obvious because, and it's obvious that this isn't the first time this has happened, John. That is obvious. This seems to be the norm, not an exception. The no write-ups certainly seem to be the norm. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we wanted to at least bring this to a head. We've talked about it quite a bit over the last several months, and we will probably revert back to this when the Ethiopian report on their 737 MAX accident is finally published, because we're going to want to look at the similarities. We're going to see basically where they've cut and pasted to, again, make a case that it was an MCAS event and not a human factors event. And again, we wanted to just bring this to a head. We always appreciate your input. We implore all of the pilots who have a real understanding or want to have a better understanding of the facts, conditions, and circumstances to read the report. There is good information in there. You have to take it in context. But you also have to look at, okay, they're writing about this, and then you go into the analysis or later in the report, and you go, well, wait a minute here. This is what they said early on. This information later in the report contradicts what they just said. There is so much contradiction in this report. I couldn't keep it. I was bouncing back and forth like a tennis ball because they would say one thing and then later in the report it would say something else. And then in the analysis, it just blew it all up. And so we would love to have your feedback after, you know, you've read the report, had some questions, or you want to get a better understanding or at least a perspective. We would definitely appreciate that because we'll talk about it on, uh, on a show and uh, we'll try to uh, also answer you via our email. And if you want to get in touch with us, definitely contact us via our email, which is flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. Again, John and I are looking at this from, you know, safety professionals, accident investigators. This is not, as our motto is, this is no spin. This is no color. John and I are just black and white. And the way we've seen this report and the facts presented in it, this is literally our version of black and white. There is so much more that John and I could talk about, but we would be here and probably bore you to tears with all the deficiencies, all the mistakes, and definitely all of the manipulation of the facts to try and reverse engineer a probable cause. And we don't want to do that, but we did want to highlight 
what we believe are substantive issues that should have been addressed to improve aviation safety. And unfortunately, they weren't, not in this report and possibly not in the Ethiopian report. There's probably 15 or 20 major questions that should have been asked that would have led to literally hundreds of different responses where those who, what, when, where, and why type of questions would have driven you just in the training syllabus alone, just in the hangar. I mean, it's just a, it's just tragedy. And you know, and there's a piece that no one ever talks about this in, in these uh, developing countries when you lose an airplane full of people. The amount of talent that's available to build an economy in a third world country that's trying to move into the technology of the 20th century, there's not a lot of talent. And they're the ones that are typically on the airplane. So you're losing your best and brightest. So you shouldn't be losing them needlessly, as this accident was and Ethiopians was. Yeah. You should be trying to protect those people because they mean so much to your country and to your economy. Yes, absolutely. And yet we don't even talk about that piece of it. Nope. And again, there are other elements. You know, while Boeing is the deep pockets and they've taken the brunt and they've, they've lost a lot of money, you and I have talked about the fact that we aren't getting paid by Boeing to support Boeing or anything else. If this was an Airbus, Bombardier, or any other manufactured airplane under the same conditions and circumstances, we'd be defending the facts about that particular aircraft. We are not defending the airplane. We are defending the facts as they relate to the cause of the loss of this aircraft. And you look at it, you know, in, the Indonesians wrote in this report, the only thing that they wrote in this report that nobody has played on is the fact that everybody's talking about the AOA disagree and the fact that the left side didn't communicate with the right side and determine whether or not one was functional and one was not functional and things like that. There was an option available. There was an option available and Lion Air chose not to install it. Now, there has been a discussion, albeit very low key, well, why should that be an option? It's a safety feature. No, because from a regulatory standpoint and a certification standpoint, it wasn't a safety critical item. You still had the benefit of AOA, but you didn't have the ability to crosstalk. Automatically. Automatically. Cross. But the option was there. If Lion Air was so interested in aviation safety and the safety of their pilots, the safety of their passengers, why didn't they spend the extra money? Why didn't they negotiate that into the deal? It would have been very simple. They chose not to do it. The Indonesians wrote about it, buried it in the factual part of the report, and never discussed that. Well, it's clear. The system wasn't needed. The comparator wasn't needed if the pilots routinely did their own comparisons. Certain training syllabuses in the airlines train for that situation. So this airline chose not to put that option on the airplane, but I bet you dollars to donuts that if we got into their training syllabus, we will find out there was no enhancement on letting the pilots know that the comparator wasn't there and that they needed to do this. John, even after they had the unreliable airspeed procedures, you know, up and <laughs> the first officer was reading them, they never followed them. They never looked at the standby. They never looked at standby altitude. They never looked at standby airspeed. They never did the comparison. Which is 180 degrees out from the crew the day before. Because they, they did, did. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. Yet that's a training function. That's an experience function. And no one talked about it. 
and again, we could we could go on and and really talk about these items and elements that they are the real crux of aviation safety. I'm not sure that aviation safety is going to benefit just because training programs haven't changed, attitudes haven't changed. Lion Air supposedly has an SMS program, a safety management system program. It's obvious that's deficient or failed because it sure didn't work in this particular accident, both on the maintenance side of the house as well as the pilot side of the house, as well as the management side of the house. But again, that's a different discussion for a different day. But again, we just tried to bring some of the issues to light in a black and white way. You know, you can agree to disagree, you can disagree. We always appreciate the feedback, so we look forward to that. And John and I have talked about starting a couple of new segments for our podcast. And uh, one of the ones based on our dissection of, of the uh, Lion Air report right now and some of the discussions I've had on Facebook and some of the other media is one particular element. And that is we're going to start a new segment called What Would You Do? And in this case, John, what's the question for What Would You Do? What would you do, regardless of your aircraft, on takeoff, right at V1, you get a stick shaker? What would you do? Soon as the airplane rotates, starts to fly, you get stick shaker or stall warning. What would you do? Let us know what you would do. Drop us an email. Let us know. We're going to read these things on the air. We're going to discuss them because everybody's going, well, I would have done this or they should have done that. Everybody's a great armchair quarterback. What would you do? And give us the type of airplane you fly, if you would, that yeah. you're basing it on. That's and, and, useful information. And the other criteria is you have good operating engines. You still have an airplane that's flying. It's controllable. So what would you do with stick shaker? or stall warning right at liftoff during the initial segment of the climb. Let us know what you'd do. We would appreciate hearing back from you. With that being said, and again, we appreciate the following that we've had. You guys have made it very worthwhile for John and I to continue to do this, try to bring you a different perspective, try to quell or at least eliminate some of the misinformation, misinterpretation, try to put things in context, and we will continue to do that because we are very passionate about the fact that in order for us as an industry to learn and enhance aviation safety, all of the facts, conditions, and circumstances of a serious incident, an accident, or just even an identified safety issue that hasn't resulted in either of those, we have to address them in context. We have to have a call to action to get people to move forward. We have to hold people accountable. And unfortunately, as we've done in this report, either the organization, the people, or a combination of both haven't been held accountable for change, or at least nothing that we've seen thus far. So again, John, thanks as always. Always appreciate us getting into these lively discussions. You should have heard the, the discussions this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to we're going to have to have a different we're going to have to have an X-rated podcast where we can really uh, use the the appropriate language to talk about this, but again, on behalf of myself, Greg Fyth and uh, my colleague John Golia, this is the Flight Safety Detectives, and for you, we want you to fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, 
go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.